was a big moment of realization for me because I had never considered the fact that I might not be doing my part in this relationship or realized that in not really saving and investing for the things I wanted in the midterm, which, you know, between your short-term savings and retirement, I was really leaving myself vulnerable. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan. And mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Jennifer Barrett, author of Think Like a Breadwinner, a brand new wealth building manifesto for women. She's also the chief education officer at Acorns and a proud breadwinner herself. Over her career, Jennifer has been the personal finance editor at CNBC Digital, a contributor to Forbes, and has written about finance for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. So incredible. Today, we're going to dive into why Jennifer thinks every single woman needs to think like a breadwinner, even if they aren't the primary earner in their home. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Jennifer, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 103 for the complete show notes. That's where you'll also be able to download your free Healthy Money Mindset workbook, so be sure to check it out. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the Smart Money Mamas show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you here and to talk about your new book. But before we do that, I want to talk about one specific moment I heard you talk about in your TED Talk, which is you had a moment when you were child was young of it wasn't supposed to be like this. So can you tell us what brought you to that thought? Sure. So I had um I had a wake up call, you might call it in my early 30s. And just to take a step back, usually the prescription that most women get, or that I had certainly gotten and learned later that most women are getting is to get a job, get married, save a little for a rainy day, save for retirement. And so I hit my early 30s, I'm married, we have a toddler, we're sharing a small one bedroom apartment. And I think I'm doing everything right. I'm paying half the bills, half the rent, I have a little 401k, I'm paying off my credit card debt, I have a little bit of savings. And this one night, my son woke up and I was, you know, this will sound familiar to any mother, <laughs> like walking back and forth in the bedroom, trying to get him back to sleep. And I just had this moment of realization where I looked around and I thought, we are in an unsustainable situation. And I realized I wasn't in a position to help us get out of it financially. And so I had a moment of asking myself, I thought I was this independent woman, I thought I was doing a lot right. Where did I go wrong? So I started to look back at the choices that I'd made with my money. And I thought, what was driving those choices? And I realized deep, deep down on a very subconscious level, I had expected my husband to really take the lead there and had sort of let myself off the hook, to be honest. I had a new baby. I was all caught up with a new baby and getting back to work. And that was a big moment of realization for me because I had never considered the fact that I might not be doing my part in this relationship or realized that in not really saving and investing for the things I wanted in the midterm, which, you know, between your short-term savings and retirement, I was really leaving myself vulnerable. And now I was at a point where some of the things that mattered most to me were at stake. And that was affording a second child, being able to stay in the city we loved, affording to buy a place or even move into a bigger apartment. And so I stopped and I asked myself, I wonder how things would have been different if I'd been raised to think like a breadwinner, like so many of the guys I dated. Like if I had truly thought I would be fully responsible for myself financially for life and probably for others too, how would that change the choices I made with my money? And the answer to that would, as you've probably read, (laughs) set me off (laughs) in a whole new trajectory financially and just completely transform my relationship with money and my relationship with my husband for that matter. Yeah, I want to talk about that trajectory. But also, I found it interesting as you read the book that so many women feel that way, right? That like, there is going to be at some point where either you're equally sharing the burden or someone's going to take care of you this expectation that we wouldn't marry someone who makes less than us or chooses to stay home or things like that is so interesting. I'm curious, like, what stories have you heard from other women on that narrative? Yeah, and I'm sure you talk about this, but we know that in more than 40% of households, it's moms are the primary or sole breadwinner. So there has been this paradigm shift in the breadwinning model, but culturally, I think we just haven't caught up to that. 
So I talk about in the book that parents, you know, research shows that parents still speak differently to their daughters than they do to their sons about money. So they focus on budgeting and how to spend smartly with their daughters, and they teach their sons how to build credit and invest to build wealth. And those are the skills that are so critical for everyone. Yes. But they're really also the skills that are associated with breadwinning. And so even today, parents are still falling victim to this assumption that the skills that their daughters will need will be budgeting and spending because that used to be the role for women, right? In the breadwinning model, they ran the household budget. They were clipping coupons and spending smartly. The men earned the money and made the investing decisions and built the wealth to help them afford what they wanted in the future. And that's just not the case anymore, as you know, <laughs> you know, in so many households. But we're not getting that message. And on top of that, we're almost socialized to think that we don't need to invest for our future. That is really the critical missing piece. And you see that in the gender wealth gap. Yes. We have like an 18% gender wage gap, but we have a 68% gender wealth gap is just astounding to me at this point when women's income is so critical. And so many of us are in this role where we're either taking care of just ourselves for longer or we're taking care of a household. And so my God, we need to close that gap. (laughs) I totally 100% agree. (laughs) And that 40% breadwinner stat, that's a tough one, right? Because I think that Sometimes the word breadwinner, people think of someone that's naturally a high earner, not necessarily just like someone who takes care of the home. And a large percentage of that 40% is single moms and with a median income that's pretty low, right? Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. And that's a really important part of the conversation too. In some communities, in the Black community, for example, women have disproportionately been the breadwinner and for decades. It's important to point that out, that there are a lot of women who have not really had the choice (laughs) to be the breadwinner. But I think what holds true for everyone in every community is that women just have not been prepared to move into that role successfully. We haven't been taught to invest. We haven't been taught the importance of investing. So you have a lot of women who are in that role, as you mentioned, but they're not making a lot of money. They're really struggling to support their family. And as you said, I think one in four children now under the age of 18 has a single mom. So more single moms than ever before. And this idea, there is a big jump in the number of women who are becoming single moms by choice. So that is a real yes. thing. But it's still, as you mentioned, or alluded to, it's still a pretty small uh, portion of the total number of single moms out there. And And what I talk about is we all just need to be prepared to not be in that role just because we might be in that role. We have a bigger chance of being the breadwinner than ever before, but also because these skills are just so important Mm. generally, whether we end up alone, you know, or single or married or divorced, whatever our situation, just having those wealth building skills and having that mindset is so important in being able to support our life and the things and the people that, that we want to be able to support throughout our lives. Absolutely. And I think when you talk about, single moms, that narrative around the vision of a struggling single mom, like when people imagine a single mom, they imagine she's financially struggling. It does not tie with breadwinner mindset, right? Like they're not necessarily viewing themselves as breadwinner, even though they're taking care of themselves and their family. So what is a breadwinner mindset? Yeah. And I think that's a really important distinction, right? Because the reason that we've seen this paradigm shift in the breadwinning model really goes back to the last recession. And in the Great Recession, so many men Mm -hmm. lost their jobs. And so millions of women literally moved into the breadwinning position because of that. So there's a big distinction between breadwinners by chance and breadwinners by choice. And a lot of women found themselves breadwinners by chance. And that can breed all sorts of You don't feel prepared for the role. If you weren't counting on it, if that was not your expectation, you may feel resentful about it. So it can breed all sorts of negative emotions. And there's a big distinction between that and being prepared to move into the role. And what I talk about with the breadwinning mindset is really asking yourself, am I making the kinds of money choices that will ensure I'm able to support myself financially throughout my life and really support the life that I want and maybe the people I love? And that means making choices that really will support you and the things that you want. It's thinking like expansively. It's not about like clipping coupons and being able to budget, although that's important too, but really thinking about how can I build wealth from the get-go? How can I start building wealth, investing, growing my money so that I am in a position where 
whether or not I end up in the main earner role, I am confident that I will be able to support the life that I want. And that is very different from the way most of us are brought up today. Absolutely. So let's go back for a second. You're pacing around your bedroom in the middle of the night, which is a place we have all been holding a baby. (laughs) What current work were you doing? What was your financial situation like at that moment? Yeah, so I was an editor at Newsweek, which, you know, pretty nice job. From the outside, I really looked like I had it together. You know, we we lived in a trendy little neighborhood. I had a pretty successful career, steady paycheck. But an important point about that job is that I had not negotiated my salary. And so Mm. I came to find out right around the time I had this wake-up call, I went back to work after my maternity leave. And not long after, I found out that someone who'd been hired in a role that was very similar to mine, they had just a couple years more experience, were making 50% more than I was. Oh my gosh. It was stunning. And I had been there for seven years. So I remember I had this moment where I just sort of closed the door and and (laughs) was in shock. And then I started crying because I thought, oh my God, I at first I never advocated for myself. And that felt like a punch in the gut. But then on top of that, I realized like over seven years, how much money did I miss out on? Not just in my salary, but that meant I was putting less in my 401k. That meant I was less able to save and invest less. I started thinking I could have paid off my credit card debt. I could have saved and invested more. All of these things that could Mm -hmm. have happened if I had advocated for myself more. And so I swore at that point, like I will never not negotiate a salary again. I'm going to do my homework. I'm going to do my, see what my market rates are. I'm going to (laughs) see what other people are earning. You know, I'm going to talk to other people about what they're making. This is never going to happen again. And and it hasn't. I've negotiated every salary, every pay raise since then, but it was such an important wake up call. And it also made me realize this idea I had growing up, and I think a lot of us do, is that, you know, we're sort of brought up to be agreeable and accommodating. And like in school, if we do really well, we're rewarded for it, right? Yes. And so you go into the workplace and you have this idea, I did, I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to work really hard, I'm going to work harder than anyone else, I'll be rewarded for it. And that didn't happen. And so in that moment, too, I realized, oh, advocating for myself is not just about negotiating to make sure I'm earning the right salary or the most I can at any point. It's advocating for myself every day, making sure my manager knows the work I'm doing. And that was really uncomfortable for me. That was way outside my comfort zone, feeling like I was trumpeting my horn or whatever it was, but and making sure that they were aware of the work I was doing. But it's so important to do that. It's like the whole... There's a whole gamut of ways that you need to advocate for yourself in your career and in your life. And that is also kind of part of the breadwinner mindset, which is don't ever sell yourself short, no matter what the situation is. Really remember the value that you bring and negotiate for that and advocate for yourself because no one else is going to do it as well as you do, right? No one cares about, about, comes down as much to. about what you make, right? No, as you do. I mean, maybe your family cares to some degree, right. but seriously, no one cares about your money as much as you do. And so you need to be the greatest advocate for yourself out there and remember that in every situation. So when you found out someone was making 50% more than you, what did you do? Did you go and negotiate a raise? Well, after I had my good cry, I... <laughs> Well, I thought to myself, realistically, I thought, how am I going to close a 50% gap at this point after being here for seven years? And what was most gutting at the time was this was a magazine I had been reading since I was a teenager. I had always wanted to work there. And for someone, I always had this plan, right? But I had no plan B because Newsweek was my destination. I had always thought I would stay there throughout my career and write and write books and had this whole romantic notion of how my life would turn out. And so that really was like a punch in the gut because I realized they're not nearly as loyal to me (laughs) as I am to them for one. But then also the magazine was starting to struggle and I realized I may not be able to stay here regardless. And so when they, they started offering buyouts and I wasn't on the list, but I went to my guild rep and I asked if I could be added to the list and how much, asked her how much I would get if I did get a buyout. And when I found out, I thought I'd be crazy not to take it. So I took the buyout, I invested all of the money and I started freelancing. And with the, I sort of challenged myself to, okay, if I need the money, I can take it out of my brokerage account. But ideally I don't touch that money and I just live on what I'm earning as a freelancer. And then that money can grow and we can use that as a down payment on a home or whatever else we need it for. 
And I did. And then on top of that, I earned more freelancing than I had in the role. And so I started to realize how out of line my market value was from what I was actually earning in my role, which is very validating. And I don't know if this was your experience, but for me, freelancing was like a crash course in negotiating and like <laughs> oh valuing gosh. yourself, right? Because you have to pitch yes. over and over. <laughs> it is. It's great. You're flexing that muscle, right? So even if you're uncomfortable, and I will tell you the first two times, I don't think, you know, the first couple of assignments that came in, I was just glad to have the work. So I probably didn't negotiate as hard as I could for myself. But as I started to realize what I could earn, and I was talking to other freelancers, yeah, I was, it was a great exercise in learning how to negotiate and to advocate for yourself. And also in understanding that, you know, you can come out of it. Initially, I had almost a scarcity mindset because I thought, oh, gosh, I hope I can find the work. Is this going to work? And so when I got the first assignment, I didn't negotiate that hard. But then as you start to get more work and you realize, wait, the work is abundant. You know, <laughs> you start to realize, like, I am bringing value here. I'm bringing value to these people who are hiring me. It shifts the dynamic when you're negotiating. And so it was, yeah, it was incredibly empowering and, and such a good lesson in negotiation and standing up for yourself and all sorts of other things, right? When you're a freelancer, you're in charge of everything. So that was a, that was a good lesson too. And taxes and, you know, and just staying on top of your finances all the way around because now you are doing everything. Yeah. And you brought up a good point too about the importance of your network, right? When mm -hmm. you're trying to think like a breadwinner and really advance your career of talking to other freelancers, talking to other employees or other people in your field and figuring out how much are they getting paid? How are yes. they negotiating? Is such a, such a powerful tool. That was absolutely key. And the first conversations were not comfortable. But I think actually over the time since I, this has been over a decade. And I think over the last decade, we have become much more comfortable having those conversations. Mm -hmm. And it's hugely important. I mean, I could tell you, there's so many stories I didn't include in the book. And I'm sure you're aware of too, where you have a conversation with someone who's doing something similar, you find out how much more they're making. And it is shocking. And I think I heard story after story after story about people who joined networking groups like Chief, where I'm a, uh, a founding member, where they started talking to other people in their field and realized they were making 10, 20, 30 percent less than they could. And how, you know, that can not only shift the course of their career, but their life, right? Because if you go back and you start earning more, that has this ripple effect on your entire life yeah. and your future. The more you can save, the more you can invest in, the more each raises, right? Because it's you usually have percentage-based yes. raises. Exactly. And there's that stat that, you know, even a $5,000 difference over the course of your career, $5,000 a year difference over the course of your career can add up to more than a million dollars. That's amazing. It's a Carnegie Mellon study. Yeah, it was that was eye opening for me too. just how important it is to even negotiate for that extra thousand or 2000 or $3,000 a year it doesn't seem like a lot. But then you have to remember that it has this exponential effect on your entire career and the earnings you'll make. And you brought up a point too, when it comes to networking in the book about how there's been this story around when women get to positions of power, they don't promote other women or they kind of protect that role where that's not actually the case, at least not anymore, where they're surrounding themselves by other women. And so how do we reach out? How do we start to build these networks in a positive way? Yeah, I think there's been a real transformation in the last decade, to be honest, because I feel like at the beginning of my career, and I don't know if it was the same for you, like, it did feel like there was only one seat at the table in a lot of companies. And there yeah. was this feeling that all the women were had to fight for this one chair. And I don't think that was necessarily my experience. But that was sort of the story that was being told to us, like, there's only room for one of you in the room. So let's see, who's it going to be, you know, and that definitely serves the people who are in power, right? Because we're all fighting with each other and trying to work harder. <laughs> But I think we're at the point now where we realize like you lift one boat, you lift all boats and that we're actually not ever going to be able to close the gender wage gap, gender wealth gap, gender leadership gap if we're not all working together. And personally, I just in the last probably five or six years started joining a lot of these networking groups that are popping up all over the place that are really transforming the way we think about networking. And the most Probably the most impactful experience I had was when I joined Chief and we have these core groups where you're curated into these groups of people who are at similar levels and not necessarily even the same sector that you're in, but just like, similar level, similar type experiences. I had all breadwinners in my group, but I don't know if that was <laughs> intentional or not, but we just immediately bonded. And I can remember time after time where I would describe an experience and I was so used to internalizing when something happened, I would internalize mm -hmm. it like, oh, I didn't speak loud enough. Oh, I was too forceful. Oh, I should have 
constantly thinking that. And as I shared some of these experiences, they were like, oh yeah, that's happened to me too. That's happened to me too. And the more we started talking about it and kind of mirroring each other's experiences, we suddenly realized that this was a shared experience. This was not something we needed to fix in ourselves. This was something we need to fix in the system. For me, that was almost the most important thing that came out of that group was realizing this is not me. Like we need to work together to change the system and to address the biases that exist within the system. This is not something that we need to fix on an individual level. And that's so important. And I would never have had that, I don't think, if I hadn't met so many women through these networking groups And then really understanding with those relationships, how supportive we can be with each other, because I think that's naturally how we are. We're just, we want to support each other. I've never, like with this book, it would not have been possible without, I think I acknowledged 60 people and there are more than that who who helped along the way. But, but just the level of support I got from other women around this, it was never like, you know, oh, she got a book deal. Oh, you know, it was never like that. It was really like, this is so great, like genuine support for each other. And that shouldn't be surprising. But I was a little surprised by just how overwhelming the support has been not just around this book, but just the kind of support we've shown each other along the way in my group in chief, and then really in all of my networking groups. And this is huge. Like, this is what will change things. This is what is going to create the momentum to create paid leave, mandatory paid leave, finally, paternity leave, maternity leave, flexibility, remote work, all of these things that we need, it won't happen unless we band together and we demand it. We have to work together to make these changes. It's the only way it will happen. You covered some of the big changes we need to see, yet I want to dive into some of the less discussed societal changes we'd also like to see happen. Before we do, let's take a quick moment to hear from our partners that help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Did you know that banks make over $35 billion, with a B, dollars a year from fees? Overdraft fees, maintenance fees, ATM fees. The average American pays over $100 a year in bank fees, but not when they use Chime. I'll be honest, I'm a little obsessed with our Chime accounts. The Chime app has no hidden fees, has over 38,000 fee-free ATMs, helps you get paid two days earlier with direct deposit, and helps you grow your savings with an optional high-yield savings account. And that's just some of the benefits. I love that every time I swipe my Chime debit card, I get an instant notification on my phone with a cute little emoji telling me how much was spent and how much is left in my account. It makes staying aware of our spending so much easier. Head to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Chime and make the switch today to a bank account that has your back. Chime is a financial technology company. Banking services provided by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. So Jennifer, we talked about maternity leave a lot and the importance of it, but there's other big societal and policy things that are holding women back, especially working moms. Can you share some of those things? Yes. And I will say on the paid leave front that we really could learn so much from Scandinavian countries because they are literally decades ahead of us. And they have noted the importance of having paternity leave specifically, and then making it use it all or lose it and putting the pressure on men to take it. And they have really shifted the narrative around that completely in some of those countries and the adoption right now. And when I say adoption, I mean, the number of men who are taking paternity leave is so high, and they've actually been able to close the gender wage gap with it. They have a higher labor force participation rate from women because of it. So we can look to them and see what's possible here. So that's so important. But also, let's be real. (laughs) If you look at a school calendar, and you look at the number of days we actually have off in this country, if you're working, there's no connection. (laughs) I mean, and the school day, even the school day, I mean, this was, it was so insane to me when I had kids and I took them into school and I just assumed there was an after school program so that the school hours would match closely the work hours. No, there was no after school program. And I thought, well, how are parents doing this? If the kids are going to school from eight to three or eight to two thirty, which is, you know, about the average school day, how are parents doing this? And the answer was, we are twisting ourselves up in knots, logistically trying to make it happen. And when you think about the number of working parents in this country, it's sort of insane to me that we don't have some kind of subsidized after-school program, universal after-school program, universal pre-K program, subsidized childcare on-site. 
you just have to look at the data and it shows that it helps retention. It helps with acquiring new employees. It cuts costs overall because you're not, you don't have employees sick days. You don't have employees having to take time off to take care of things with their children. Like if you're more flexible in your work, you can pick your child up from school and then come back and get on Zoom and join a meeting, which we know we're doing right now. And I hope that the lessons that we're learning from this pandemic, we carry over into the workplace when we start moving everyone back into the office again. I think that's absolutely something we saw with the pandemic about how school just is not set up to work for working parents. And then we made everybody go do school virtually. And it's just impossible, (laughs) right? Like you can't educate your child and keep them on Zoom and work a full day. It's just not enough hours in the day. It's impossible. And we saw the result. We did. 2.5 Lots of women leaving the workforce. Exactly. Hopefully that ultimately drives some change, but we'll see. And I think one of the things too that comes up is we start to talk about on-site childcare and flexible leave and flexible work and paternity leave and companies say that it's so expensive, but then the ones that actually implement it say that it actually pays back. How are the ways that it benefits the companies to add these policies? Yeah, well, I mean, for one, retention, and that's huge. But then also in missed days and in sick days, and when I say sick days, I mean, sometimes parents have to take an entire day off, you know, this if their child is sick, because if the kid is in daycare, daycare will send them home usually for two days. And now a parent's stuck. If a nanny gets sick, if you happen to have a nanny and you can afford that same situation, there's really no backup. I think we have a long way to go on that front, but there are a lot of big progressive companies that are starting to offer at least emergency backup childcare. So they, they'll arrange, they'll negotiate with companies that provide that service so that you can at least lean on them if you're in a situation like that and you're not missing work. Now, this is advantageous to the employer because instead of calling in sick that day or taking the day off, you are now able to work because you can use this emergency backup care. It is not much of a lift for an employer to offer that, but it makes a huge difference for them in terms of employee engagement, employee retention, productivity, all of these things. And there's tons of research around this too, that it really benefits companies. I mean, you can look at in California where they have mandatory paid leave. They went back and interviewed companies to see what the impact was. I have to go back and look at the exact numbers, but basically they were able to close the gap in terms of women coming back to work versus women who don't have children, that that gap closed entirely within a few years that all those women went back to work. So the impact is measurable and we have the results, we have the research, we just don't have the will yet, I think, or maybe the momentum to really push companies to make those changes. But I do think that might change in the future, certainly around flexibility and remote work. In surveys, there there are an overwhelming number of people who say, I don't want to go back to work five days a week, whether or not they have children. You know, they've realized the benefits of having some flexibility. I think it's going to be really tough for employers to bring people back on a full-time five-day-a-week basis, unless you're in a job that requires that kind of interface with customers. Absolutely. So that's a benefit. But let's go back to your story for a second. So you're freelance writing. You're making more than you were making at Newsweek, which is fantastic. How long did you stay a freelancer? I stayed a freelancer for about, I would say, about a year and a half. And then I took my first job in management. And in that role, I more than doubled the salary that I had made at Newsweek. So that was, again, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And I will say, just for your listeners, to your point earlier, I talked to a lot of people about how much the roles like this pay and actually had a friend who worked at the company, a former colleague who gave me a sense of what the budget was for this role. And it was higher than I had anticipated. And so I then negotiated a higher, probably a higher salary than I would have otherwise. And I'm so glad I did. And so it really speaks to your point of talk to people and find out what people are actually making, get as much intel as you can beforehand, because that makes such a huge difference. But yeah, for me, I went into management and that's where I've been for the last 12 years. Awesome. And so you're currently at Acorns. You want to tell us how you ended up there? Sure. So most of my career was in media and a lot of it was in financial media. And just before I joined Acorns, I was the personal finance editor at CNBC Digital. My team and I were constantly doing stories about how most Americans don't have enough saved to cover a thousand dollar unexpected expense. We're on the brink of this retirement crisis. It was like sort of the same headlines that I had been writing for a decade. Yeah. (laughs) And I just thought, okay, so clearly just getting the information out there is not enough to make a difference here. And I was starting to feel like just a deep frustration around that. 
And we, among other things, we covered a lot of these new fintech companies that were popping up. And so Acorns was one of those companies that my team covered. And I was fascinated by the simple concept of rounding up your spare change and investing it. Because I realized as soon as I heard it, I thought, this is it. This is what will change things because the big resistance a lot of people have to investing or the fears they have around it is like, is it risky? What if I make the wrong choices with my money? Can I lose my money? There's all this fear wrapped around it. But if you are simply investing your change, you know, that remove that just removes all the friction. Yeah. Um, because what else is it doing? It's like sitting in your couch, you know, gathering dust. <laughs> so I thought it was a really brilliant, simple and brilliant concept. And then the idea of linking it to spending so that throughout the day, you know, you link your card, we round up your purchases, we invest that money. And so throughout the day, you're spending. And at the same time, you're investing. It just was the concept was so brilliant. And I was really attracted by the mission of the company. And it's no BS, like everybody there really believes in this mission of making investing more accessible to everyone and and helping more people save and invest. And so that's what brought me to the company because they actually came, they recruited me. Noah, who's the CEO there now, was then the chief strategy officer. He recruited me. And as we started talking about it, I thought, you know what? I just want to give this a go. I want to be a part of what could be the solution to so many of the things I've written about for the last decade. And, you know, we've we've grown exponentially since then. We have 9 million users now and a whole suite of investing products. But it really was just that initial idea and the idea behind it that drew me to the company initially. And I imagine at this point in your journey, so much of Thinking Like a Breadwinner you mentioned throughout the book is about really being able to create the life that you want and living in alignment with your values, which is something that's really important to us here at Smart Money Mamas as well. And so I'm curious, you had to be at a point where you were, the values of the company were important. You said you aligned with their mission, but what benefits, what employee systems were important to you as you looked for a job like the one you have at Acorns? Yeah. I mean, I have, my kids are now, they just turned 10 and 14. So, and I'm not planning to have any more. So I wasn't looking specifically, for example, at their maternity leave policies, but I was curious. And we do have a very generous maternity leave policy that was crafted in part by a woman who's on the exec team and has three children, three young children. When she got pregnant the first time she came in and said, look, I think we need to talk about this policy. And and this was pretty early on in the company's growth. And so we established a pretty generous one there for both parents, which was important. And I think there really was a big emphasis on the growth of employees from the beginning. We have a leadership development head who creates all these programs. There was just sort of from the beginning, there was a real feel of like, okay, this is a startup, but it's not the kind of startup where you are grinding seven days a week and you're supposed to feel like, just because you're a part of the startup, you should be grateful. There was a realistic sense of balance. And also, I, I have to say, our CEO is very progressive. And when I first came in there, I talked about this in the book. The first time I spoke to the company, it was quite small. I was the first woman who'd been hired in senior management on the same day as someone else who's now our head of HR. But outside of that, there weren't a whole lot of women. And I was worried like, oh, no, what did I get myself into? But he moved into the CEO role. And we now have about 50% representation of women on the Wow. You know, at the senior level, really diverse senior level management, big commitment to making sure we continue to do that and, and do better every day. So, I mean, and it's not BS, it really is like a, it's a core value of the company. So, I think those things became really important to me. You know, it was really meeting him and realizing he was very progressive. And even with the book, when I told him, I pretty much at the get go, I had the idea that I want to write this book one day. And I told him, and he said, I would be surprised if you didn't have outside projects. You know? <laughs> He's like, just, you know, keep me posted, let me know. And then when, when the book was sold, I had a conversation with him about how am I going to make this work? I need to write this book and I need to have the time to do it. And so we worked out a schedule where I could reduce my hours in order to finish the book. That's fantastic. I'm not sure that every employer would be that <laughs> no. accommodating, but they were fantastic. They were really fantastic. That's really great to hear. And so we've all kind of heard some of these narratives around why women need to be more financially stable, right? There's this whole financial empowerment really movement that we're hearing it talked about more and more, and whether it's divorce or loss of a spouse or whatever, but we still get that feeling or we still hear sometimes the, well, it wasn't supposed to be that way. And it's this resistance to Mm. wanting to do the work, even when you know you're supposed to. (laughs) And so what's your advice for starting to shift that mindset and really adopt that breadwinner mentality? 
Yeah, well, I think it's been portrayed as a negative, as a burden. Being the breadwinner is a burden. And what I wanted to do with this book, which we originally going to call it the joy of breadwinning, (laughs) because I got so ticked off. I was so tired of breadwinning and women always being seen as a negative, right? Because there are so many benefits to having this mindset. The way I think about it is it just, for me personally, and for so many of the women I interviewed, it just expanded the possibilities that I saw for my life or our lives, my family's life. And it expanded the way I looked at my own capabilities. So even being in this role, I'm not sure I could have imagined myself being an executive at a startup 10 years ago. I, I don't even think that was on my horizon. I think I would have been scared silly. If someone had said to me, one day you're going to be on the executive team of a startup, I would have been like, no, I don't, I don't know. That's, that's, that's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm a journalist. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> exactly. I'm comfortable here, you know. But I think knowing that you are providing for a family or knowing that you want to provide this life for yourself and that you have those capabilities is incredibly empowering. You know, like we talk about self-care as... I'm not going to diss this, but you know, it's important too, but it's like scented candles, you know, and doing yoga, which they're both important. I have them, you know, I, I yeah. do yoga and I have scented candles, but I think true self-care is being able to take care of ourselves financially. Like there's yes. nothing better than that. There's nothing more empowering. You have so much more agency over your life. You have more confidence. You have more security. It's just, it has been one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life. And so... <laughs> I know. I preach. Go for it. <laughs> I preach because I know there's a hump we need to get over. But one of the things I do in the book is look at those negative headlines and like, okay, where did these come from? What's driving them? And a lot of times it's a sensational headline. And even the story is not so negative. Like, for example, there was this headline that went viral five, six years back about when women are the breadwinners in their marriages, men are more likely to cheat. The rate of divorce is higher. All of these really scary headlines. But then when you looked at the data... If men picked up a fair share of work in the household, it mitigated that risk. It almost eliminated the increased rate of divorce in a couple. So what that really came down to is not, it, the issue is not women earning more. The issue is men not doing enough at home. You know, And so I think we need to put this spotlight on where the problem actually is. And the problem is not in women earning more. The problem is that we still need to figure out what that means in terms of how you divide the household responsibilities, how you divide childcare. And that's on, you know, for us, it's letting go of some of the childcare, at least for me, that was a tough thing was like letting go of this idea that I had to be the primary caregiver, or I was a terrible mom, you know, so it's letting go of some of those beliefs that are pretty deeply ingrained in us. And also just confronting the fact that a lot of men and women grew up in a household where the dad was the main breadwinner. And the mom was probably the primary caregiver and in charge of the household and did a lot of the household work. And so sometimes men just, it doesn't even occur to them, honestly, to pick up (laughs) some of those things because they were used to their mom doing it. And so we have to ask and we have to like have those uncomfortable conversations where we sit down and say like, look, this is actually what needs to get done in the house. How are we going to do this together? Because I can't do 80% of it. It's not fair. And it's also impossible, especially if you've got the more demanding job. So that's it. We just have to have those conversations and raise the awareness around it. But the benefits for women of the breadwinning mindset and of being able to earn your full potential and build wealth and be in a position to have those choices and to have the kind of wealth to support the life you want. It's incredible. There's nothing better. I love that you broke down those headlines in the book because it is so misleading. And another example that you had brought up in the book was the headlines around men not wanting wives who make more, right? That they like aren't attracted to women who make more to them. But that's not correct either, right? No. In fact, when they survey men, a lot of them were very happy to have their partner bringing in money. Why wouldn't you be? Honestly, (laughs) I understand that for some people, your identity may be wrapped up in being the main breadwinner as a man. But there is a danger in having your identity wrapped up in anything, in any one thing. So if your entire identity is wrapped up in being a mother, that can set you up for a huge disappointment when your kids leave the nest. You know, I mean, there's there's a danger in, in having your identity be wrapped up in any one thing, but it happens. And so I do understand that for some men, it can be a little awkward if their wife is earning more or they learn their girlfriend is earning more. 
if their sense of identity had been linked with being the main earner. And so it can be confronting, but I can also say you talk through it and you get over it. Ultimately, you know, it's healthy to have your identity be informed by a lot of different things too. So I think it's actually a healthy conversation to have to say like, okay, I can be a good mom without being the primary caregiver. I can give up some of these things and it doesn't mean that I'm not a good mom or that I'm not going to have a good relationship with my kids or that my identity is somehow less than, you know, it's important to have those conversations because we're multifaceted human beings and, you know, our identity really is tied to so many different things. And so I actually think it's healthy to allow both partners to feel like, they can fully participate in caregiving and in breadwinning because there are real benefits from both. Totally agree. So if you're a mama who's listening to this, who kind of feels like maybe I have been coasting with how much I'm earning or I'm not involved enough in the finances, what are some of those first steps we can take to get more involved and start building wealth? Yeah, I mean, the first step is to get more involved. So even if you're not the main earner, making sure that you're really actively engaged in the financial decisions, you know where the money is, you know about every investment account, every bank account, you know what your net worth is as a household, you know what your expenses are, just making sure you're really on top of that, even if you're not the person who's, you know, usually one person kind of takes the lead on that. But it's so important that both people are actively engaged and aware of where the money is going. And really like the full picture, right? You want to know, are we saving enough? For example, if you want to send your kids to college? Are are we saving enough for that? Are we saving enough to make sure we can retire when I think we will in my head, but maybe haven't talked to my partner about? Are we making enough money in case I want to start a business in a few years? Or, you know, we want to travel, we have all these travel plans, are we making the right choices to be able to support that? And that should be those are conversations you can have together. But to your point about the woman who doesn't have the breadwinning mindset, but wants to take a few more steps to move into that. The very first step, I think, is to look at your income coming in because that is the springboard for all your wealth building efforts. So you want to make sure you're earning as much as you can at any given time. And then the second part is really the big gaping hole for a lot of us is that we haven't been taught to invest or really encouraged to invest outside of like a 401k necessarily. And so it's educating yourself on investing. It's getting into the game, however you do it. You know, even if you're putting in like $100, $200 a month to get started, even $50, it's really just about getting in the habit of putting that money straight into a savings account, straight into an investment account, allowing that money to grow so that that money is working too. You're not the only person working for your money, which is the case when you're living paycheck to paycheck. It's just you working, working for the money. You want your money working for you too. Yeah, we got to get started investing as soon as possible, right? That power of compound growth. Oh my God, so important. And so Jen, A lot of what we talked about in this episode so far is the societal expectations and all the things we learn about money from being kids. And so you have a 10-year-old and a 14-year-old. Can you tell us a little bit about how you talk to them about work and about money? Oh, yeah. We talk a lot about it. Actually, it was funny with the when the GameStop, you know, all that stuff happened with the GameStop stock where it shot up to, you know, absurd levels. My 14-year-old came to me and said, Mom, you know a lot about stocks, right? Can you just break this down for me? Because I saw this thing on TikTok and, you know, I don't really understand it. So so sometimes that's how our conversations start. And I sit down and I explain like what drove the price up and the difference between like perception and and fundamentals and how those can drive the stock up and why. And then I showed him the next day, I said, look how much it's dropped. So for example, this is why you don't want to time the market because... It is almost impossible to do that. And all these people that came in at $300 lost all this money when it dropped again. So that there are little inherent lessons there when, you know, when your kids ask you questions, same thing with my 10 year old Roblox just went public. He was very excited about this. And we had a whole conversation about it. We're going to buy some stock. We're going to watch it. But even earlier on, I told them to pick a stock, pick a company that they loved, and we were going to invest in stock. So we own a lot of JetBlue stock because we fly JetBlue a lot suffered a little this past year, but I think this will still be a good lesson for them overall, because over time, I, I really do believe that we've seen this with the stock market overall, every downturn ends in an upturn over time, there's significant growth. So I think there are lots of ways to teach those lessons. And we do talk about my work and how my work helps support the things we have, like we're going to buy a new place. And I was explaining to them like, the work that I do allows me to save the money and we put the money in savings and this helps us pay the down payment. And, you know, so that they really understand that connection between 
the work. And, and also I tell them, you know, I love my work, which is hundred percent true. I love the work I'm doing. I love writing this book, you know, all, all of this. I say to them, I really love what I do. And I'm also able to make a good amount of money to help support us. Cause I really want them to understand that work is not a grind. It doesn't have to be a grind. And then also understand the connection between when mommy goes to travel for work or whatever, it's because I really want to help provide for you too, so that they're able to make that connection. I don't know that I had that connection as early on with my own dad. It was only later that I realized all the sacrifices that he'd made. So it was important to me to make sure my kids got that connection pretty early on. And and we have really candid conversations around it. It's a very valuable one for sure. Mm -hmm. And so Jen, before we get to our Smart Money Mama sorting hat, do you have any last words for moms who are trying to embrace that breadwinner role? Yeah, well, part of I, I would say Give yourselves a break if you're new to the role. It takes some adjusting. It really does. I couldn't have written this book, Mm -hmm. you know, even six years ago, I think, because I was still kind of sorting out our dynamic and feeling like I was catching up financially when I first moved into the role too. So I was really feeling like I was grinding at the start there. So that's one thing is like, be easy on yourself and make sure you take time for yourself. And also remember that there's so much data around this, like being a mom, it's so much more important the quality of time you have with your kids than the quantity. And so being present with your kids when you're with them, building those relationships with them, that's more important than like, being at every single game or picking them up every day from school. And I think we sort of know that inherently, you know, like if we're close to our own parents, it's really the conversations we have with them and feeling close to them generally and knowing they have our back is more important than did they show up every single day for us at school pick up? I don't know. You know, I couldn't tell you that. (laughs) So yeah, I think that'd be the overall message. And then also the message that you can do it. I mean, you really can do it. You can invest, you can, earn enough to support the life you want on your own, whether you're married or not, you can do it. You definitely have the skills. We are so capable. And so often we sell ourselves short. That's a big message too, is to remember that we have everything we need to be successful in that role and to to be able to support the lives we want. Awesome. Fantastic. All right, Jennifer, as I mentioned, before we let you go, we have to have you try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. The sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where we ask the magical hat to reveal something about you. Are you ready? Oh, okay. Yes, let's do it. What is your biggest financial achievement to date? Mm. I think when we passed the million dollar mark in net worth, that was a big one. That's a huge one. Congratulations. (laughs) That was a big one. Yeah, that was huge. That was a huge moment. I don't talk about that a lot, but it was between my investments and also our house has the value has grown significantly. But that one moment where I added everything up and I I saw it, I looked at it, it was an incredible moment. That's really cool. Did you do anything to mark the moment or to celebrate? Um, You know, just a little inside. (laughs) All right. I called my mom. You called your mom. mom. That's (laughs) awesome. I called my mom. That was the first thing. Yeah, she's been an incredible role model for me too. (laughs) I think everyone listening someday wants their kids to call them with this milestone. (laughs) And say that. I know. I think it was. A, my mom was like, all right, I'm good. <laughs> like, they're not going to be coming to me for handouts. You know? So Jennifer, where can people buy your book and follow you, follow up with you? You can get more information on the book and order it from my site, which is jenniferbarrett.com. It's B-A-R-R-E-T-T. I'm on every social platform on Instagram and Twitter. It's jbarrettnyc. And then I have an author page on Facebook, which is brand new. Good thing for me. <laughs> which has been fun. So if you want to find me, you can find me on basically every platform. Mamas, we will have links to all of that in the show notes. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us and for writing this book. Oh, thank you for having me. And it's it's been a great conversation. Mamas, I love Jennifer's energy and passion about women taking control of their earning potential and crafting their family's financial future. And I think we all need to remember that while we talk often about the gender wage gap, we need to focus more on the gender wealth gap, which Jennifer called out is much, much wider than that income gap. And we need to think about how women are not only getting paid for their skills, but also how we're using that money to build long-term wealth. If you're ready to shift into the breadwinner mindset, or if you're already in that role and want to feel more confident, be sure to check out Jennifer's new book, Think Like a Breadwinner, which is linked in the show notes. As always, I've wrapped up my top three takeaways from this conversation with Jennifer to bring into your own badass breadwinning life. Let's do this. One, you don't have to be the breadwinner to have a breadwinner mindset. 
Instead, the breadwinner mindset is about asking ourselves different questions. Are we making choices with our money that lead to long-term financial wellness? Are we getting paid appropriately for our work? Are we taking on work that will keep us stuck instead of moving our careers forward? Things like planning parties and taking notes in meetings, right? Are we doing important work that's going to show up at promotion time? Or are we getting stuck in kind of that office mom role that so many of us often get asked to do? How can we do things differently? And it's also about asking ourselves, are we using our superpowers to really have the best career possible? Sometimes this means making a big shift. And sometimes it means going out and applying to new jobs. And that's okay, especially if it helps you get to the next level. Even if you aren't the primary breadwinner in your household, you need to adopt a breadwinner mindset because when you don't have one, you're more likely to think that the money you earn is somehow not as important as your partner's. That means you don't negotiate as much, you don't value your own work as much, and likely that gap between what you earn and your partner earns is only going to widen over time. Two. The media and workplaces haven't kept pace with changing family dynamics. This is so important. Despite the fact that over 40% of households now have a female breadwinner, despite that for married couples, over 70% of those households have a co-breadwinning model where both partners work, our society is still set up that expects a woman to be at home. When we look at the school day, when we look at maternity leave policies, When we see headlines that portray breadwinning women as an anomaly and something that both men and women are uncomfortable with, these are old narratives. The realities have changed. Breadwinning women are no longer this anomaly to be studied. Instead, it is now a normal in many, many households. As we said, over 40% of households have a female breadwinner. And so instead of clickbaity headlines, we need workplaces, policies, and media that have kept up with that changing family dynamic. We need to change the narrative, both in our own minds and for our kids, so that they know that there should be equal partnerships, that you can only rely on yourself, and that you should be financially responsible for your own future. We talk about in the Motivated Mama Society how responsibility is one of the core money fears for a lot of people, where we're waiting for this Prince Charming, this other person, to come just take care of it for us. And if we can start to change that narrative so that fewer people have that fear, fewer people avoid their money and their finances, and instead take control, take responsibility, we will see more financial success, more wealth building than we currently see. Three. Be aware of how you talk about money with your daughters versus your sons. If you're listening to this podcast, you are a woman who is interested and engaged with your money. But that doesn't mean our old biases, our old money stories aren't playing in. We still see statistics, even today in 2021, about the fact that we talk to our daughters versus our sons differently about money. We talk to our daughters more about budgeting and coupon clipping and saving. We talk to our sons more about investing in career development. Make sure you're aware of this. You can't necessarily remove all bias, but instead you can just try to pay attention, listen in to the things that you're saying, and pull all your kids into these conversations because that is how we make lasting change. You've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Jennifer again for coming on the show and encouraging us all to think like breadwinners. You can find links to Jennifer's new book, Think Like a Breadwinner, and her social media profiles in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 103. I appreciate you spending time with me today. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. I so enjoy hearing what you all think. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. 